You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. Hi, welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. I'm Seth Shostak, and as a listener to this program, you're undoubtedly aware that we discuss a variety of subjects, from astronomy to zoology, from computer science to biology, anthropology, and more. But even our panoply of subjects can't accommodate every science story our team finds interesting. So in this episode, problem solved, because we're making room for the oddball stories. We'll present research that doesn't fit easily into our themed shows, but we'll also expose you to our idiosyncratic interests by sharing what we personally find fascinating. (laughs) I'm Molly Bentley, and here's the thing. Seth and I have not yet shared with each other the subjects that we choose to pursue, so we will reveal them to you and to each other in this episode. It's called Eclectic Company. All right, Seth, let's begin with you. You're up. Uh, You have an interview here with a scientist. I do. I do. And we're about to listen to it. Um, Set this up for us. How did you come across this story? Well, this story, I mean, I went looking for a story like this, I have to tell you, Molly. And I think it's, you know, I hate to say this, it may be just part of the getting older business. You know, as you get older, when you're a kid, you don't think about living forever. You just figure you will. You know, when you're 18 and old enough to join the Army, you figure you're immortal, right? But when you get older, you realize maybe you're not immortal. So that's that's what drew me to this subject. Well, that gives me some hints as to what it might be about, something about perhaps the aging process. And again, I don't know who you interviewed. We're about to learn who you interviewed and what the subject is. So let's take a listen. And then on the other side of it, you and I can chat about why this subject is so interesting to you. Hi, I'm Tony Weiss-Corey. I'm a professor of neuroscience at Stanford University. Tony, I think all of us would love to live to 100 or 150 or maybe 200 in good health. But I also believe that most folks consider that impossible. Is it impossible? Right now it's impossible, but we think based on animal studies that we may be able to extend lifespan in the future. So your lab at Stanford has the impressive charter of studying brain aging and neurodegeneration with a focus on age-related cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. Do, do we know why brains age? 
we still don't really understand why uh, organisms age. There, there doesn't seem to be a genetic program for aging. But it, is it a matter of repair mechanisms failing? I mean, kind of like my car. If I stop fixing things on my car, eventually, you know, the whole thing kind of dies. Is it lack of repair that's uh, responsible for the fact that everything in our body ages? It seems that is the main reason, indeed, that a biological system maintains itself young by repairing it constantly. And this seems to work for the first few decades in our lives, but becomes more and more challenging as we age. Well, on the basis of the fact that I can't help but noticing that many types of deterioration happen after our childbearing years, I mean, that's simply saying that there hasn't been any evolutionary pressure to uh, have our bodies fix our brains or any other part of us. Nature just doesn't seem to care much once your kids have left the house. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And, and that's indeed what, what I think most aging researchers believe to be the case, that really it's the evolutionary pressure that is just not there anymore once you have reproduced. And once that's not there anymore, yeah, you could say evolution doesn't care. Yeah, well, that, that, that's kind of a bummer. I mean, obviously. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, engineered for eventual failure. If you think about any system that humans engineer, it cannot repair itself, right? There's nothing out there in this world that can maintain itself and regenerate itself. But life, you know, a biological system has this capacity for, you know, a limited period of time, but it can repair itself. It can, you know, function at a very high level for months or years or even decades or centuries. A um, hundred years is quite a lot if you think about any system, any machine that we build. Few of them last uh, as long as a human body does, right? And you, you can even take it a step further if you think about any system that would last forever in principle. It is a biological system. One of the most intriguing results, Tony, that came out of the labs uh, about 16 years ago was the observation that transfusing the blood of young mice into old mice caused some sort of rejuvenation. Undoubtedly, many among the public were excited about such a fountain of youth. And there was a startup in Monterey here in California called Ambrosia. I'm sure you know about it. Selling the blood component plasma from kids at $8,000 a liter. Would that have been a good purchase? No, and it actually wasn't kids. Uh, that would be illegal. Um, it was just young adults. But, you know, we're still trying to understand um, this whole concept. It certainly does seem to work in, in mice and in rats. But in humans, you know, this is experimental. And um, we, we actually started a company to translate these findings uh, into, you know, real clinical trials and test them in a, you know, in a standard ways, a standardized fashion. It's, you know, there are clinical trials that are ongoing to test that plasma in patients with Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. There is one treatment that, if I may, um, where people actually, and, and this is a company out of um, Barcelona called Griffos, where they uh, remove the plasma from uh, patients with Alzheimer's disease. 
and then they give them back just one of the main fractions um, of plasma that is rich in albumin. This is the main protein in the blood. And they showed in large controlled studies where people don't know what they get in a placebo controlled study that patients with Alzheimer's disease actually do better if they get sort of an exchange of their blood. So they take the old stuff away and they give you a fraction of the plasma back that is rich in, in this abundant protein and also some other growth factors. I seem to recall reading about a decade ago, in fact, articles in which it was said that Alzheimer's was on track to be one of the first degenerative diseases for which we'd find an effective treatment. Uh, it sounds like maybe that will happen. I mean, it hasn't happened so far. It hasn't, unfortunately, and it may still take some time. It may be that we get, you know, treatments initially that combination of treatments um, that have, you know, very small effects and it will take time to get more and more profound longer term effects. People are also trying to find um, very early interventions where you find the earliest um, signs of the disease and you treat people then rather than what most clinical studies have treated people who often are already demented and that might be too late to uh, try to repair the brain. Let me return briefly to what you were talking about earlier uh, in which you were saying you're doing studies, uh, I mean clinical studies eventually here on this uh, blood transfusion approach. What, what kind of, I mean, what would the advertising be like? What kind of uh, effects could you maybe optimistically affect? What, what's the promise? The promise would be that you have a clinical benefit uh, in patients with uh, Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease uh, where these are being tested. And again, in animal models, they work um, effectively. And maybe just a little bit of a background. I mean, the, uh, the idea of giving young plasma is maybe, you know, novel. But the idea of uh, using plasma uh, to treat diseases is not revolutionary at all. It's, it's actually one of the oldest approaches. So, and this started with hemophiliac, so people who can't clot their blood. If they cut themselves, they will die. This was, by the way, the first genetic disease that was observed by the Jewish people when they did circumcisions. They recognized that this was a genetic defect. So people then try to figure out could they get plasma blood from people who have normal coagulation and give it to people who can't coagulate their blood? And that re was really part of the birth of this, what is called a plasma industry. But from the fundamental level, Tony, biology, I mean, it's just physics. It's not magic. So we could, in principle, cure things like, well, Alzheimer's we've talked about, but, you know, senior moments or anything else that's wrong with your body, right? I mean, the, the sky's the limit here. There's, there's no limit on what we could at least in principle do. Is that not true? That is true. And that comes back to our earlier discussion of, you know, can a machine maintain itself? And again, the biological machine can do that in principle. But one of the most incredible experiments that has been done um, was by Shinya Yamanaka who got the Nobel Prize for this. He could take old cells and reprogram what is called reprogramming them to an age zero, to embryonic 
type stem cells, we call these induced pluripotent stem cells. So these are cells that can give rise to a new organism again. So just as an example, you could take the cells, the skin cells from an old mouse who's about to die. You take these cells, you reprogram them, you basically turn a few switches in the cell and it becomes a cell that is what we call pluripotent. It has age zero and can give rise to a normal young mouse embryo that will produce another generation of mice. And so that discovery uh, has now advanced into any species, and including in humans. Finally, I, you know, I told my physician a couple of years ago that I was really bummed because I felt that had I only been born two generations later, I wouldn't be worried about neurodegenerative diseases or cancer or even the common cold. Do you think I had reason to be bummed? Yes, you, you do. Um, but you could also look back, you know, 100 years earlier and you would have said the same thing. Well, Tony Weiskoray, thanks so very much for speaking with us. And I hope uh, we'll get the opportunity to do it again in the distant future. <laughs> It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for your interest. Well, Seth, very nice interview. I have to say I laughed out loud when I heard the first question. We'd all love to live to 100. <laughs> yes. Would you like to live to 100 or past 100? Well, my mom did. She was uh, she was quite active right to the end. So it didn't look too bad to me. I mean, you know, it's I mean, I, I don't know. I, I won't know unless I do it. So Anthony Weiss-Corre is a neuroscientist. Um, does he specialize in aging? Does he specialize in the way that the brain changes when we age? It seems that his specialty is indeed degenerative diseases of the brain, like, you know, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and, you know, these sorts of things that, uh, you know, accompany aging very often. I thought he might be uh, working on the general problem of aging. But in fact, as you say, he was more interested in the specific problems of degenerative diseases of the brain. And of course, those are the things that, you know, in many ways are, are terribly tragic. But I, I went to him. I thought he was going to tell me, look, Seth, you know, just eat these boiled persimmons or something. And, uh, you know, you'll, you'll be in good health for the next 200 years. Uh, he didn't say that. Well, you kind of gave it away when you talked about the blood plasma from kids. And he said, no, no, it's not from kids. But <laughs> that got me thinking that perhaps you were looking for, you know, the fountain of youth or the blood, kind of like a vampire, the blood that will provide eternal youth. Right. You know, if you're going to get bitten by a vampire... I guess the message here is make sure it's one that's younger than you are. So you didn't get the answer you wanted to a subject that interests you. Um, but there are two themes that came out that I thought were fascinating. One was stem cells, and that's not new. But the idea that you could turn cells back so that they become pluripotent, meaning they could become anything. But the other, which was new, was plasma therapy. But he pointed out that plasma transfusion, I mean, that's actually nothing terribly new. In fact, they've been using it for a long time for hemophiliacs, you know, people whose blood won't clot. And it was recognized that there was something just defective in the blood. So if you replaced the, the blood or a large part of it in somebody who is a hemophiliac, then, you know, it actually helps. And that's an old idea and an old treatment. So he said that, you know, getting new plasma, you're, you're not breaking great ground there. 
Okay, well, um, short of getting stem cell therapy or a plasma transfusion, uh, perhaps eating right exercise? <laughs> well, maybe it is the only way to go because there doesn't seem to be anything else really terribly effective at this point. But, you know, in, in a sense, he was kind of optimistic because if I asked him flat out, look, this is not impossible to do this, right? It's just physics at the, in the end. And he agreed with that. He said, uh, you know, yeah, we should be able to do this. And he pointed out something that had never occurred to me. Uh, and that was that unlike machinery, the only things on the planet that actually can, you know, effectively fix themselves are living systems. I never thought of it that way. He said, I bet you don't have any machinery that lasts for 100 years. Mm -hmm. He's right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're doing better than the fruit fly that only lives 24 hours or so. I know. I hope they're not, you know, listening, but that's right. <laughs> I guess me and your grandma are going away, David. When we get where we're going, we'll never be sick. We won't get any older and we won't ever die. And you know where? Where? Look up. Outer space, my lad. Outer space. Who's gonna take it outer space? It don't matter. All right, well, Seth presented his surprise interview with the neuroscientist who's studying how to reverse aging, or at least slow it down. And now it's my turn. So coming up, a subject that blends mechanical engineering with one of my favorite leisure activities. Well, these are science stories that don't easily fit into other shows. It's Eclectic Company on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. We're looking at science research in this episode that we, that is, we the hosts, find particularly interesting and that don't fit easily elsewhere, but that we really wanted to cover. And until the subjects of these interviews are revealed, neither Molly nor I know what each other's choices would be. 
but now Molly has heard mine. That's right. We heard from the neuroscientist who discussed the latest treatments for stopping or slowing the aging process. That was your surprise interview. Yes, it was. I was just looking to the future. And now it's your turn. What? <laughs> well, apparently you were also looking to the past. Okay. <laughs> so Molly, what science subject did you pick? Okay. I'm going to give you a hint, right? Here's the big picture Ready. overview. The big picture was Nate Goldberg, who's a graduate student here, and I were interested in developing models for bodies that absorbed water. For example, uh, soil changes its properties as it absorbs the water, which is why your house settles in the winter as the ground gets wet. And so we're very interested in models of deformable bodies like that. And that's one of the areas that I do research in. My name is Oliver O'Reilly. I'm a professor of mechanical engineering at UC Berkeley. Okay, Seth, any guesses from that? My gosh. It's a, I don't know, giant sponges or so, something that absorbs water. I, you know, it's a little mysterious. I didn't think it'd be so mysterious. Okay. I love giant sponges. Maybe in a way that's what it was. Well, here's how Professor O'Reilly's research developed, which gives you an idea why I got interested in it. We got stuck. Some of the ideas that we were working on just weren't going anywhere. So we decided to look at something as simple as possible. And we ended up looking at spaghetti. Oh, spaghetti, huh? <laughs> Maybe this is about the mechanical properties of pasta. I mean, he is a mechanical engineer, right? Well, it is. Here's the thing, Seth. He wanted to simplify the model for how bodies deform as much as, well, as much as possible. Oh, as much as possible. Okay. <laughs> And, and Seth, you think that you would know what happens when pasta cooks, right? It gets soft. There's a lot more to it. And there's a lot of studies been done on, on pasta as well, actually. So the interesting piece about it is, like, how do you model it? Can you develop a model? And from your model, you can say, okay, in 10 seconds, this is what the pasta is going to be doing. In 20 seconds, this is what it's going to be doing. In 30 seconds etc. And so that's what we were after, is trying to model the cooking of spaghetti. Oh, okay, I get it now. He's cooking spaghetti to understand other phenomena that are maybe not so amenable to a direct experiment, all right? This whole business of how you absorb water, I mean, that's a general problem. Exactly. Now, if you excuse me, I have to get ready for something. All right. Well, Oliver, uh, while we wait for this water to boil, you know that I am trying to approximate the study that you did. So I guess you could surmise what else I have here on the counter. You've got some boiling water. You've got some pasta. Yeah. The, the boiling water is not on the counter, though. <laughs> that, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, so you probably have some pasta. Yeah. I have spaghetti. Will that work? That's perfect. It, uh, we, we both note that it's straight and very rigid right now. That's true. Completely dry. It is, yes. I'm not going to put any pasta sauce on it yet. The water here is, is just starting to boil. I wonder if you could give us an overview of what we should be looking for. I understand there are three crucial stages. So the three stages that we're looking for are sagging, settling, and curling. Okay, those sound like the stages of life, but okay, perhaps the stages of pasta too. All right, uh, three stages, sagging, settling, and curling. So let's put this pasta in. This water is boiling. You didn't add any oil to your water, did you? No, we didn't, no. And we didn't add salt either. 
this pasta is going in. All right, it looks like this is the first stage, isn't it? This is the sagging. It's happening pretty quickly. The pasta is just starting to submerge slowly, slowly. Okay, it's under the water. What just happened? So what's happening is, is that the, the pasta is absorbing water. So it'll start to sag under gravity. The other piece that's happening during the sagging is that it's actually starting, because it's absorbing water, it's actually starting to change its, the radius. So the radius of the spaghetti is actually starting to increase. And also it's starting to lengthen. Of course, you're not going to put your hand into boiling water and do this measurement. So you have to trust me on that. Can I stir it or does that... I wouldn't stir it. Oh, I'm not going to... Oh, okay. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, stir it right now. Okay. Do you think it's at the settling stage yet? How, how quickly does that happen? It happens pretty quickly. You'll notice that if you look at the spaghetti, it, part of it is, is in contact with the side of the pot. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And then at the other hand, on the bottom of the pot, which you can't see through the water, a portion of the spaghetti will be in contact with the bottom of the pot as well. It's basically becoming like a very, very flexible, like almost a shoelace now. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is, um, is you'd think, okay, well, the heat is a big component of this physical change in the pasta, but you had to amend your experiment, didn't you? You didn't use boiling water. What, what happened? So we initially built this, imagine two sheets of glass um, and then put some silicon between them. So we, what we wanted to do was to basically have a single strand of spaghetti stuck between two glass plates and then have water, boiling water between the two glass plates. So building this as a single unit would probably cost um, probably $20,000, which we did not have. Sort of if you, like a fish tank or something, you'd be able to really watch it up close. Yeah, but pouring boiling water into a fish tank is not a good idea. Okay, we'll scratch that experiment off, off the list here. And I have to say that $20,000 for pasta is expensive even in the San Francisco Bay Area. So we had to go to a, to a plan B. And instead, what we did was we decided we were going to do all our experiments at room temperature. And that meant we could basically build the equipment we needed ourselves. So it was two sheets of glass and then a rubber seal between them. And because okay. everything was at room temperature, we didn't need to worry about the seal breaking. Mm. Yes, <laughs> delicious. Um, so if you do, if you cook pasta in room temperature like this, it takes two hours. Are you really cooking it, though, if you're letting it sit at room temperature? Well, you are still, you're changing the, you're changing the texture. You're not doing it in a very appetizing way for, for the following reason. So when you're cooking this spaghetti, you'll notice that the water starts to become cloudy. And so the reason for that is that starch from the spaghetti leaks out into the water. And so this leaking process is actually important and the other process that happens is that some of the starch actually gelatinizes on the outside of the spaghetti strand. And that gives the spaghetti this wonderful taste that you do not get <laughs> when you put spaghetti into cold water for two hours. It basically tastes like wet, clotted flour. So you did taste it. You tasted it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, I mean, you have to. <laughs> You know, it's a once in a lifetime experience. And then you discovered that Italians had done some um, experiments cooking, if it is cooking, pasta at room temperature, and this helped you. What did you learn from them? We were really, really happy to find their data. They had measurements of 
the change in the length and diameter of a piece of spaghetti. They also measured the change in mass. So that gave us an idea of how it was absorbing water. And they also measured how flexible it was. So that, th this data was a godsend to us because if we had to do this measure, these measurements ourselves, it would have taken months. But if the Italians have already done the, 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 all the tests you can possibly think of on pasta, aren't you kind of reinventing the, uh, I don't know, the pasta wheel if you do it yourself? They hadn't developed a model for the actual spaghetti deforming. So they had they'd done the measurements, but they hadn't measured what it's like for a piece of pasta in a pot to cook at room, <laughs> room temperature and sag and then curl off the side wall. And so that's what we did. So that's looking, I don't know if you can see that. We're on a Zoom call, but can you see? Yeah, that looks pretty good. Now, am I supposed to throw this against the uh, wall? That's the that's the time-tried test, right? I never did that. Yeah. So, somehow throwing pasta it. against a wall after you've had it in water for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to throw it on this plate. This is the final stage. This is where it's curling on itself. So it, it's, it basically folds over itself. Uh, what's the stage called when you overcook it? Is there something beyond curling? Cooking a la Oliver. <laughs> okay. Is that what you'll be serving to your family back in Ireland? Yes. <laughs> okay. You can tell them it's a specialty. Um, I have a couple strands of the dry pasta here, and I think you advise comparing the two. And, and what are we looking for here? So with the uh, uncooked pasta, it's, it's in a straight line. And so you put it on the table and it just it stays straight. But if with the cooked pasta... There's a curve in the pasta and this curving is what we call intrinsic curvature. So it's a curvature that gets built into the pasta. What, what did you say? Intrinsic curvature? Intrinsic curvature. So plants grow in a way that builds this curvature into them. So for instance, a rose stem, the reason a rose stem, when you cut it, it doesn't flop is because it's, it has this intrinsic curvature built into it. So as the plant is growing, it's building a certain, a preferred direction into into the plant and that's one of the main beauties of plant growth actually and how does the intrinsic curvature help the plant it sounds like it makes it more stable of course here this pasta is less stable but in a plant it gives it some structural integrity it allows branches of plants to grow almost horizontally so that the leaves at the end of the plant can see light and so the plant the leaves can photosynthesis and so it's one of these beautiful things in nature. So, if, you know, look out my window and I see a, a branch of a tree. I look at it and go, wow, that's intrinsic curvature. That's a, such a beautiful thing. You don't look at the branch of the tree and think that looks like a plate of spaghetti. No, I haven't gotten that. <laughs> no, not yet. Okay, well, what are the practical applications of this research, Oliver? Now you understand, <laughs> you see what happens to spaghetti as it absorbs water, what happens to it. Does that model have any um, real world application? So for us, the research is really curiosity driven and it's also sort of this wonderful exploration of mathematical models of everyday life. Right now, we're, we use this work to look at soft robots, which are these squishy, deformable robots. And we're also, I'm also been thinking a lot about blistering paint because unfortunately there's a roof, I have a roof leak, started noticing it because the paint on the outside wall of my house is starting to blister. And so I'm thinking about the effects of how water seeps through ceilings and then basically slowly opens up how the paint basically starts to blister. To me, these are just very interesting problems. 
Well, finally, finally, Oliver, the really big question at this point is marinara or pesto? I like marinara better. Marinara. Okay, that's what I'll do next. Well, Oliver O'Reilly, what a pleasure it is to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us in the kitchen. Thank you so much, Molly. It's been a pleasure. Oliver O'Reilly is a professor of mechanical engineering at the University of California, Berkeley. Well, Molly, I got to say, I, in some sense, I'm not surprised because I know how you like to cook in the kitchen. So that didn't surprise me. But the problem here certainly did surprise me trying to understand how a spaghetti strand or anything that's like it uh, absorbs water. I mean, sure, he was standing on the shoulders of Italian chefs because they had done the measurements. But, you know, to come up with a model, which is to say, you know, sort of a mathematical formulation of how this all occurs, you might say, and many people would say, okay, this is not applied science. There's no big problem we're trying to solve here. But it's understanding science. It's basic research, even though spaghetti's involved. And that always pays off. I mean, they said, you know, we're just doing it for the fun of it. Well, that's why people were doing quantum mechanics in 1920, for the fun of it. Turns out it had tremendous implications later. Yes, but it's hard to do quantum physics experiments and include pasta. I think that once pasta is included, I think we can justify almost any experiment. Yeah, well, they were using their noodles. <laughs> That's right. They were using their noodles to understand noodles. You know, I thought it was also interesting that he mentioned cooking at room temperature. And people might think, oh, that's impossible. It's not impossible. Room temperature is still a temperature. It's not absolute zero. So anything that would cook at, you know, 300 degrees will also cook at 100 degrees, although a lot slower. Well, to round out our grab bag theme, we have a whole lot of uh, stuff orbiting our planet. Coming up, a real potpourri in space, space junk. What it is and what can we do about it? Do you think there's any pasta orbiting the planet? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I hesitate to speculate. There's all sorts of stuff up there that, you know, nobody tells you about. I guess that would be mission impossible. <laughs> it's a little of this and some of that from our favorite recent science stories. It's Eclectic Company on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You probably prefer not to think about what's in your junk drawer. And admit it, we all have one. 
What's in yours, Molly, if it's not too personal to ask? <laughs> you know, pretty much everything is in there. I mean, what is not in this drawer? This is where we toss things that are too difficult to file. So everything from paper clips, keys, you know, mysterious keys, ceramic doodads, um, all sorts of scraps of paper, you know, old takeout menus. You know, and the beauty of the system, Seth, is that once it's in that drawer, you never have to think about it again. So it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, well... It, How about yours? Well... <laughs> I think I'll see you when it comes to uh, mysterious keys and raise you a couple. But uh, beyond that, yeah, it's, you know, old thumb drives and tax receipts from 35 years ago, stuff like that. But it turns out that space has a junk drawer. I'm assuming you're talking about stuff that is orbiting the Earth, although calling it space junk seems a little dismissive. Because I'm assuming that this is hardware that once was really valuable hardware, now we're calling it junk. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's <laughs> it probably cost millions of dollars originally. We'll call it space debris. You know, there are millions, literally millions of pieces of now defunct satellites and mission-related hardware, pieces of rocketry, you know, astronaut gloves, all orbiting in low Earth orbit. Are there really astronaut gloves orbiting the Earth? There's at least one, and there's also a Hasselblad camera, which I wish I had. I, I often dream of having an, a Hasselblad camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they somehow got out the airlock. <laughs> I don't know how. Well, um, how, how big a problem is this set, the space junk? Well, anyone who's seen the film Gravity knows that space junk can be really bad if it hits you. It can ruin your whole orbit. Explorer, this is Houston. Go ahead, Houston. Mission abort. Repeat. Mission abort. Initiate emergency disconnect from Hubble. Begin re-entry procedure. ISS, initiate emergency evacuation. Houston, elaborate. Debris from the missile strike has caused a chain reaction, hitting other satellites and creating new debris. Traveling faster than a high-speed bullet up towards your altitude. I'll copy. Copy all. Because even as junk that's as small as a sand grain, when it slams into something at a dozen miles a second, I mean, it can be devastating. You know, one of those spacecraft with people in it actually got hit by a paint fleck, and it almost broke the window of their spacecraft. So it's, it's serious. Goodness. So here you go, Molly, another interview that you haven't yet heard. And this one was recorded when we were at the Annual American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting in Seattle. Ah, uh, yes, in early 2020, before the pandemic. So you went off and, and talked to an expert to talk about this high-flying space debris? I did. All right. We're all interested in taking a listen, and um, I'll let you know if I have any questions. All right, let's do it. My name is Mor Bajan, and I'm an associate professor in aerospace and engineering mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. Morba, you're interested in space junk. And now, if I talk to my neighbors about space junk, uh, to begin with, they usually walk away. But they have very little idea what that means. To them, it sounds like, you know, garbage in space. What is space junk? Yeah, so we've been launching satellites, it turns out, since the late 50s. And interestingly enough, most of what we launch in the space never comes back. And so as humanity has, has developed more and more of a need for technology that is provided by space-based capabilities, we keep on putting more and more stuff in space, and it just kind of remains there well beyond our lifetime. So we went from an object of one, a population of one, to now roughly about 30,000 things uh, the size of the cell phone all the way to the, the space station. Size of a cell phone or larger? Yes. Okay, so what do I care? I mean, it's been said that space is big, very big, so they keep putting stuff up there. But I mean, you know, this is, this is a trash receptacle that's pretty large. Why would, why would this be a problem? So it's more like we don't put things just anywhere randomly. Uh, we have something like highways in space, like uh, shipping lanes. And so 
these lanes are actually becoming more and more crowded. And unfortunately, sometimes the junk in these lanes, which is drifting for many years, tends to collide with things that we care about, like things that provide financial information or things that provide position navigation and timing or uh, weather services and that sort of thing. So eventually it affects people. Well, Seth, can you say more about that? Can you give us a specific example of how a collision with space debris might affect us here on Earth? I mean, would we ever know that it happened? Well, I think you would know that it happened, unless it was strictly a military move, and then in that case, maybe you wouldn't. But, you know, there are many satellites up there that are doing things for you all the time. If you make an international telephone call, or if you're watching television to see, you know, something that's going on in Europe or Japan, I mean, a lot of that is handled by satellites, the weather, uh, you know, but perhaps the most critical use of satellites is defense, you know, keeping tabs on the enemy by having eyes in the sky. So yeah, it can have a very important and consequential uh, effect on you. Ah, I see. Well, let's get back to the interview. Okay, so the problem here is that a lot of the satellites, if you will, that are up there are kind of at the same altitude, so there's some real chance that they'll collide with one another and, uh, you know, knock something that's valuable out. Absolutely, that's exactly it. Okay, so at, at what altitude is the problem? I mean, you know, a lot of stuff goes into what's called low Earth orbit, and I think that's a couple of hundred miles up. It's not very, it's not very far. Yeah, so basically low Earth orbit goes roughly all the way up to about 1,200 kilometers in altitude, but right around 800 or 900 is kind of a sweet spot because we put so-called sun-synchronous satellites there that do Earth observation, Earth monitoring. And unfortunately, back in 2007, you know, China blew up one of its own satellites at that altitude and created many thousands of pieces now sharing that orbital regime with things that we care about. Seth, when he said that the Chinese blew up their satellite in 2007, did he mean they deliberately blew it up? Yeah, yeah, they aimed a missile at it. And they blew it up. So I assume this was a defunct satellite, one that they didn't need anymore? Well, one they're not going to use anymore, that's for sure. But, you know, the point was they, yeah, they had a satellite that was probably not working, and they blew it up to test the system for destroying satellites. This was, if you will, a rocket test. And blowing it up shows that they have the capability to take out satellites from, say, the United States. Oh, goodness. But he wasn't implying that the sole responsibility <laughs> for debris at that slightly lower altitude of, I think, 800 to 900 kilometers is the Chinese. Uh, surely there's debris from other countries, too? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, the debris comes from all the countries that launch anything into orbit, really. No, it isn't exclusively the Chinese, but it would be like, I don't know, the, maybe the Chinese sending a ship out into the Pacific gyre and dumping a whole bunch of plastic debris. You can say, well, I mean, they're, they're not the sole contributors to all that debris in the ocean, but they're certainly not helping the problem. I see. They made a problem a little bit worse. Well... Let's continue with the interview. Okay, so this is like, a, I don't know, on the freeways where you see uh, tire remnants. I guess they, they retread truck tires or something. And, there, you know, there aren't too many of them. I don't worry about them when I go out to drive. But if they never went away and they just kept accumulating. We have, you know, freeway cleanup crews. Imagine if those didn't exist whatsoever. And now you have to deal with that growing number of, of junk that you have to now swerve out of the way and that sort of thing. I believe there was a NASA scientist about 20, 30 years ago by the name of Kessler who said that, uh, you know, if the density of junk up there uh, gets above a certain threshold, now the collisions become much more rapid, and pretty soon you turn everything 
<laughs> at those altitudes into, I don't know, sand, and now you can't even launch people to the moon. I'm familiar with what, what Don Kessler said. I, I, I have to say that everything that I've seen so far in nature is that nature tends to seek equilibrium states. At some point, things become small enough and maybe traveling in similar directions to where it's not too much of a big deal. So I don't want to be completely dismissive of the Kessler syndrome, but I want to be partially dismissive at this point. Well, it sounds there, Seth, as though Dr. Jaw is not concerned about the concerns raised by Kessler that you could have so much space debris that it would make it prohibitive <laughs> to launch spacecraft. Yet, on the other hand, he thinks it's a problem. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's just his estimation of how severe the problem is. The problem is simply that every time you have a collision, right, you produce more things to cause more collisions, right? You have all the shrapnel, if you will, from the first collision, which can precipitate a second collision. And this effect can grow very, very rapidly. It is called the Kessler syndrome because of this guy, Don Kessler, who first pointed it out. But what Morba is saying is that, well, this problem may sort of go away because we'll be forced to keep putting stuff into orbit that's going at about the same speed and in the same direction as the other stuff out there. So it's not very likely to actually cause collisions. I know what he means when he says that nature likes an equilibrium, but what does that mean for space junk orbiting the Earth. Yeah, well, it's a little unclear, but I think that what he means by equilibrium is that if you put up a satellite that, because of its orbit or size or anything else, is uh, causing collisions, well, that, that piece of hardware may be taken out by a piece of junk, and consequently, uh, you know, kind of an equilibrium is reestablished. Only those things in orbit that are, you know, kind of avoiding collisions by going with the crowd like at a racetrack, if, if some of the horses run the wrong way, you're going to get a lot of collisions. But eventually you, eventually you get an equilibrium situation where all the horses are going in the same direction. Well, let me ask you, what fraction of the uh, orbiting satellites up there, say at low Earth altitude, are actually functioning as opposed to, you know, having died years ago for whatever reason? Yeah, so I would say in total, we probably monitor about 3,000 things that are working. Out of the 3,000 things that are working, uh, maybe two-thirds of that are in low Earth orbit at this point. But again, most of the trash is also in lo low Earth orbit. So I would say that probably 10% of stuff that we track in low Earth orbit, 10% are working things and 90% is garbage. So what do we do about it? I mean, do we launch craft that are garbage collectors? I mean, how do we solve this problem? There are lots of countries that are putting stuff in orbit and maybe none of them has an incentive to do anything about it. Right, so the United Nations just passed these 21 guidelines for long-term sustainability of space activities and if the 93 countries that signed to these guidelines would actually implement these things nationally and make it space law, I think that would go a long way to mitigate further debris. As far as the debris that currently exists, the remediation part, which would be the removal, European Space Agency is involved in, in funding something called clean space where they're going to go in, in 2025 and actually remove, demonstrate how they can remove one of these pieces. So some of it is actually cleaning up. Some people are looking at the possibility of recycling things, which would be an interesting business. But then we definitely want to mitigate uh, creating more of it if, if we can. It seems to me, I mean, you've got something 300 miles up. And if you had a little rocket on board that device when it died, 
you know, you could either kick it farther out into space or you could, <laughs> you're wincing at that. Yeah, so here's the thing. Uh, we already have these graveyard orbits uh, and, and kind of they're kind of like landfills in space. So I'm going to be kind of against having more and more landfills and I'm going to be more about the, the concept of when you go out to go camping, uh, you bring back everything that you took with you sort of, sort of thing. So I think countries need to move towards deorbiting and these sorts of technologies to, to clean up what you've put up there once you're done. You say deorbiting. I mean, that, that's kicking them back toward Earth and having them burn up in the atmosphere. But of course, as we know from past experience, not everything burns up completely in the atmosphere. And if you read in the morning papers about, oh, well, this 500-ton uh, spacecraft is going to crash somewhere in the Midwest, I mean, maybe that's not a good thing either. Well, so the thing is, if you just let things deorbit just very naturally, then you'll have randomness be a part of the equation, and so some things might survive, some things won't. But I believe if it's purposeful and if it's steep enough, then you can cause it to, to heat up enough to where you can pretty much guarantee that, that it'll burn up. So that's really what I favor is being very purposeful about how you do the deorbiting so you just don't hope that everything works out. Well, finally, more about the bottom line is the bottom line, right? This is going to cost money, and I want to put up a satellite that does this, that, or other for humankind. And, you know, if you enforce me to put a little rocket on that thing so it comes back, you know, that eats into my payload. Maybe it obliterates the payload. So how practical is this? So I think it's analogous to what we do in other domains. I mean, we do charge people an extra this, that, or the other for air travel, for going on ships, toll roads, that sort of stuff to kind of maintain the roads and bridges, as it were. I think being able to share, you know, spread that burden to some of the user community I think it's okay. We need to start looking at those sorts of models, I believe. Environmentalism in space. Booyah. More of a job. Thanks so very much for speaking with us. And thank you, says. Well, <laughs> I was paying attention, and since he did an ID, I can tell you that that was Morabaja, and he is an associate professor in aerospace and engineering mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. And I did have one final question for you. Um, he talked about deorbiting some of this space debris, and I really didn't have a picture of how that would work. I mean, do you just wait for it to fall out of the sky and then on whose head does it fall? Well, yeah, actually, a lot of that stuff does eventually just fall out of the sky by its own, because even a couple of hundred miles up, there's a little bit of air. So there's a little bit of friction, and that slows these things down a little bit. And when they slow down, you know, it's that's just Newton, Newton physics. It becomes, you know, a tighter orbit, and then that slows it more in a tighter orbit. And eventually, it comes back to Earth in a spectacular fireball in the sky and you can hope it doesn't hit your car and that astronaut glove that you mentioned earlier that's been orbiting the planet when does that fall down it's small enough it'll probably burn up in the atmosphere so i don't know maybe it's asbestos or something but no it's going to take a long time i mean many of these pieces don't come down for dozens of years hundreds of years thousands of years even millions of years depending on how high up they are and deorbiting just means that they built in a little rocket on the craft to force it to do exactly what we talked about there. And now for the final word on space junk, we turn this over to the ultimate authority on all things futuristic, Futurama. I'm a dried up husk of a scientist. This is all my fault. No, it's my fault too. I'm sure I threw out more than my share of that trash up there. 
The people of the 20th century were idiotic slobs. Well, that's it for our show. We've brought together a couple of science interviews that particularly interested Molly and me, and that serve as a reminder that there's simply no shortage of interesting science research out there. Only that, like in Earth's orbit, there's just a dearth of space in this program for it all. Well, we couldn't do the show without the multi-talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates the composition of planets, moons, and asteroids, among other things astronaut gloves, for example. I'm the Institute Senior Astronomer Seth Shostak. A big thanks to our listeners and to those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon. Original music in the show is composed by Dewey DeLay. If you'd like to know more about the guests you've heard, well, you'll find links to them on our website, bigpicturescience.org, along with past episodes of Big Picture Science. This episode is called Eclectic Company. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.